Maybe you like the idea of being more anti-racist to hold yourself and others accountable. We know. We're there with you in the search for understanding. We also know that this search can be overwhelming. You're suddenly attuned to every article that talks about racism and white supremacy and what white people can do better. You notice every time you see someone of color, wondering if you came across as friendly and accepting enough. You debate how to, or even if you want to, talk to your aging or any relatives about the inappropriate things that come out of their mouths. You get tired and you want to stop. It's very human to feel tired and want to stop because racism is a huge, entrenched, complex issue to wrap your head around. We're happy you picked up this book because it means that you are a good person, that you care about our world and the people in it, and that you want to do the best that you can. But to be able to indulge in that exhaustion and decide to walk away from the conversation, that is a privilege. All right, that's all I've got for this amazing book. Again, very eye-opening. Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Suzuki Graham, Dear White Women. If this new notable intrigued you, I encourage you to check the book out for yourself and also explore some other books and media that empower black people. You can also check out my Zoo Notable on Wangari Matai, uh, uh, two Zoo Notables on The Woman Herself and then on her great, great memoir, uh, Unbowed. You can also check out the Zoo Notable on the book, All We Can Save. But until next time, let's close up with a few quotes from Dear White Women. I will start off with a wonderful quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Those who stand up for justice will always be on the right side of history. Very, very poignant. Sasha and Sarah say, it's a learned skill to listen to people's stories. People are the experts in their own lives, and we need to believe them when they tell us what's going on for them. It's well enough to say we're nice people, that we listened, that we learned. Maybe we even shared a story on social media about racism. But what changes if we don't do anything with that information? Nothing. They also say, when black people in this country get free, the benefits will be wide-reaching and transformative for society as a whole. I love this part. They, they uh, encourage us to, to do this activity. They say, it may feel difficult, but if you identify as white, consider writing in your own hand on a piece of paper, I have benefited from white privilege. Science shows that writing things down helps encode thoughts into our long-term memories and helps us internalize feelings and focus on the truly important things. Acknowledging white privilege is a fundamental part of white people's participation in anti-racism work. So if you're game, please take this important step with us. And to close us out, Misasha and Sarah say, you may still be asking, where do we go? When we seem so divided, how can I truly make change? While we don't have all the answers, nor do we pretend to, we do know this. It is the small things. It is the conversations that start hard and get easier. The interruptions that you don't want to make but are so glad that you did. The call that you place on behalf of the family down the street. 
These small things are the very things that will make change over time. This isn't just a one and done or a checklist that we can click through and neatly put into the side while, while proclaiming we're done. This is about sustained movement and all of the diverse voices and styles and brains and bodies that need to be involved. This is about the history that we are living in and creating with every action or non-action. And there are only two sides, being anti-racist or everything else. Which side will you stand on? And we'll kick things off with big idea number one, learning the experiences of black people. Quote, imagine a moving walkway, those horizontal escalators you see transporting people through an airport. The walkway is moving in the direction of racism in the U.S. It's always moving in that direction, as it's the way policies were set when this country was founded. An active racist is someone who is walking down that walkway, speeding along now because that person is not just riding towards racism, but actively taking steps towards it. On the flip side, an anti-racist is someone who has turned around and is actively taking steps away from racism. You can imagine how slowly the anti-racist appears to be moving, perhaps sometimes able to beat the tide towards racism and sometimes being dragged along with it. So what about those people who are on the walkway but aren't doing anything? Even if they're facing away from racism and in that sense symbolically denouncing it, they're still being moved toward that racism along that track. If we aren't actively learning about and fighting against systemic problems in our society, then we are by default supporting racism. All right, this Zoomotable is going to be really about some hard truths. And it's a hard truth for me too, but honestly, when I read that statement, don't I think the same about conservation issues? Again, in my mind, if you aren't actively recycling or if you are not actively cutting out palm oil from your diet or you're not actively ensuring the meat that you eat is sustainably sourced, you are by default destroying the planet and part of being a part of the problem. I often become so engrossed with conservation and the non-human animals, I tend to forget about the human animals and don't at me, humans are animals, get over it. And when I forget about the people that make this planet wonderful, I can become part of that problem. So how does one start with fighting the systemic problems that black people face day in and day out? We learn. So here are some very interesting truth bombs I read in Dear White Women. And all these come from separate chapters in the book. For instance, in the chapter on white privilege, Masasha and Sarah share this thought. Imagine being born into your family, possibly torn away from your parents and siblings, being made to work from the time you're a child, and told that it's illegal for you to learn how to read or write. Then one day in your teens or early 20s, you're next told to go figure out your life. And if you don't, you'll be unofficially put back into a system of restraining and subjugation. Where would you even begin? And that was the history of racism or slavery. And then once they were free, they just had nowhere else to turn to. Again, very eye-opening to me. 
In Driving While Black, the authors opened my eyes to some issues that black people face behind the wheel and really got me thinking. They said, you might think that the rate at which black drivers are being pulled over and searched is unfair, even unethical, but it doesn't end there. The result of this disparity in traffic stops and searches creates a ripple effect throughout the entire criminal justice system. Let's play this out. Traffic stops often result in traffic tickets, which results in fines or, or fees due. As ABC re News reports, the failure to pay those fines and fees can result in the suspension of driver's license, and in many cases, an impossible choice. So let's say you get pulled over for, over for driving while black. You're issued a ticket, which you can't afford to pay right now, and your license is suspended. What do you do? You have one of two choices. One, you have to stop driving, which means no way to get to work, childcare, healthcare, and possible basic necessities like grocery stores and pharmacies. That option doesn't seem sustainable, but what choice do you have? Well, you have choice number two. You keep driving and risk being pulled over again. You do get pulled over, and this time it results in a misdemeanor charge because you're driving on a suspended license. It also means higher fines and fees and maybe even jail time. Suddenly, one traffic stop has spiraled into a permanent record and you being inextricably linked in a negative, irreversible way with the criminal justice system. And all because, just because, you're black. We also have this, uh, this idea on the looting. Uh, so there's a whole chapter on, but the looting. And again, the authors say, the looting that takes place in these situations is usually interpreted as evidence of human depravity. That's definitely how we heard it being discussed in 2020. We heard it from our own circles. If everyone just stayed peaceful and calm and protested in the manner that people felt comfortable with seeing, then white Americans would support these types of protests and calls for justice. So let's ask a question. When the pain and suffering of your people has been largely devalued for centuries, when you bring attention to problems by taking a knee during the national anthem and then see a man suffocated to death by a knee on his neck, when you protest peacefully and your children and leaders are shot by the police on the streets, when this happens over and over again, what would you do next? Would you say, well, let's just keep this peaceful and things will change one day, even though we've been trying this tactic for the last 400 years and we've not gotten very far. That again puts things in completely different perspective. And then finally, the extra stuff black women go through talks about medical care being a black woman. They say, Oregon-based OBGYN Dr. Jennifer Lincoln released a TikTok video in 2020 that talked about the difference in care between black and white patients. The video went viral because it touched on a particularly important and sensitive issue, the disparate treatment that black women receive in areas like maternal health care. Even Serena Williams, who is the number one ranked women's tennis player in the world, at the time of giving birth to her daughter, almost died in the maternity ward because her voice was silenced as to her own medical needs. Now this struck me even as a, a white woman because 
I struggle to have my voice heard and have my concerns taken seriously by doctors. I can't even imagine what black women who are marginalized ignored and thought that they may not feel as much pain due to thick skin or something, what they could possibly go through. Again, as I said, these stories and these experiences made my eyes wide open. Now, some of these ideas and facts I have may have known, at least getting in the back of my head, but I certainly didn't understand or fully comprehend until I put it into context. Of course, Black people are tired of peaceful protests. Of course, Black people are terrified when they get behind the wheel. And of course, Black women in particular are angry. But that doesn't quite make them angry Black women. Be clear. These stories and realities opened my eyes, but of course, the next question is, what can I do about it? Well, that leads us to big idea number two, how to at least act like an anti-racist. So what can you do about all of this besides being upset by the inequalities that Black people face? Vote for measure that would ban racially charged ways to differentiate people based solely on quote-unquote suspicion of guilt. Use a white privilege that you have to ask questions, to stand up for fairness and justice, to record with your cell phone if something feels off to you, to call for help, to ask if you can be of help, be a witness, be a voice. After learning about the realities and history behind many Black people's experiences, the authors of Dear White Women share ways for each of us Actionable items to help, well, the idea of leveling the playing field comes to mind. One of the most poignant ideas for helping is to just simply shop at local Black-owned shops. And I believe this is crucial for promoting a better society anyways. When we shop locally and patron Black-owned stores, we are voting with our wallets, which is such a powerful way to let our voices be heard. Because when the consumers buy certain products or when we stop buying others, producers pay attention. Now, is looking for Black-owned, locally produced stores easier than shopping online? No, but our choices can make a difference. So just think of it this way. Which would you rather your money go to? A small business owner who may be using that money that you give them for their services to pay for their child's soccer registration, or that money going to a CEO's pocket to pay for their third vacation home in Mexico. When we support Black community members, we don't just help those Black people, we help the next generation of entrepreneurs as well. But most importantly, Sarah and Masasha encourage us to take care of ourselves while we work to break down systemic racism in our society. Quote, if you're feeling drained, angry, exhausted, anxious, or anything other than full capacity to handle controversy, take a moment to consider how you want to respond. Things you say while you are feeling heated can create further division rather than foster connected communication. And sensitive conversations like these don't often end with one pushback to a racist comment and that the other person is going to likely reply with a counterpoint or an argument or a total disagreement with what you've shared. So here is where we give you permission to do something that not everyone agrees with. Disengage. Of course, 
Not having a conversation that teaches a person about their racism will lead to zero change for that person. But it's important to remember that if you're not able to have a productive conversation that's helping take down biases or racist views, then it's an unproductive conversation anyway, one that won't contribute to anti-racism. These unproductive conversations will not improve the lives of Black people. They won't improve the world that our kids will grow up in. I have personally noticed that when conversations get difficult or when the challenge ahead seems daunting or overwhelming, it really does help to take a breath, check in with myself, and ensure that I am taking care of me too. So while we fight racism and take intentional steps towards becoming more anti-racist, remember you. Take care of you while supporting Black people in the community and being a tremendous voice for change. So we're going to move on to big idea number three, how social media and cancel culture has stopped us moving forward. Quote, as we continue to be fed views that play into our groupings, similarities, and affinities online, our digital lives become parallel to our more homogenous social circles. Counter to social media's original vision of giving users a more global view of things, we fall into a self-perpetuating echo chamber where we begin to think most people must feel the same way as we do. More and more, we are insulated from exposure to opposing viewpoints or from hearing about experiences different from our own. Instead, the feeds we are exposed to all seem to support what we think. We as society are becoming increasingly divided, segregated into groups as a result of both our geography and our technology. Unless we consciously seek out perspectives different than ours, putting in the effort to balance our intake of information, we are being stuffed increasingly down a rabbit hole of our own making. Uh, There is a controversial documentary that discusses some of the pitfalls of using social media. It's called The Social Dilemma. Now, granted, I do take documentaries with a grain of salt these days after seeing The Cove and Blackfish, but it is always worth watching for some more eye-opening ideas. The main issue with social media is that it is doing the opposite of what the original intent was. Instead of connecting people, it is dividing us into what they said homogenous groups based on similar likes and tastes. Now, it does make sense. Social media makes money from getting us to stay in our devices. So they cater to what each person likes and what reinforces their, that person's attention. But this ends up creating what is called confirmation bias. It's seeing more media about what we believe and then thus ignoring or disregarding information that goes against our beliefs. This also plays into what's called cancel culture. And if you're not familiar, cancel culture is where someone says something offensive or disagreeable and you stop following them on social media. You also cancel their business contracts and you just end your relationship with them in all forms. Now, this can be a bigger deal with social media and that what we were talking about before, that confirmation bias, when influencers that we follow decide to quote unquote cancel another person, a business, or a product. Now, what's wrong with canceling someone? I mean, we want to cancel racism, right? Well, first, and this is my, my opinion here, it can backfire and create more divide. 
And again, this is what the other side doubling down and raising efforts to support that which is being called out. And we see this in politics all the time. Trying to cancel a rival just garners more support from the rival's audience. The other problem, as described in Dear White Women, is the punishment mindset versus what uh, what I call the growth mindset or the transformation. Instead of trying to reform, rehabilitate, or transform someone, we just cancel them and then push them aside. Now, what do these two have to do with racism? Well, first, we are pushed into groups by social media, trying to get us to like certain posts. And this has created confirmation bias or in what is called othering, which divides people more. The more divided we are, the more we see the other side as wrong. It doesn't even have to be race-related, but it often ends up that way. We look at protests as them instead of us. We look at the looting and the rioting, and we view that harshly without looking at the scenario through empathetic lenses. It's not long before they are the problem and not us. When we see someone take a knee during the national anthem, instead of looking at why they're taking the knee, we just can't stand what they're doing. And we divide ourselves further and begin to cancel those others out. Or maybe we're on that reverse side and look at it as someone who does understand the looting and the protesting and the taking the knee. We still look at those who scoff or get angry at these actions without empathy as well, and we want to cancel them. But what does othering, confirmation bias, and cancel culture accomplish? It defines others by their mistakes. They become unredeemable. And shouldn't we be trying to build bridges instead of burning ships? And what would you like to see more of? Now let's do that. Let's learn to forgive, learn from each other, and learn to keep moving forward towards a brighter tomorrow for everyone. All right, and big idea number four, conservation and Black Lives Matter. Quote, so you've got a friend who sees your Black Lives Matter t-shirt and immediately responds with, but all lives matter. What do you say? Well, here's a couple analogies to share. You're attending a breast cancer fundraiser. Your donation is specific to breast cancer, not to any other kind of cancer. Yes, breast cancer affects mainly women, and yes, it only affects a subset of women. Does it make sense to walk into the fundraiser and yell, all cancers matter? All right, all right, okay, full disclosure. I know I said I would compare this book to conservation, but hear me out on this one. It's been a hot minute since I've heard anyone yell, all lives matter, but I have to admit it's also been a hot minute since I've publicly promoted Black Lives Matter. Now, this doesn't mean that this issue has just gone away. That would be like saying global warming isn't real because it's cold today where I live. <laughs> now, after write, reading about Black Lives Matter movement, I was inspired by the analogy shared to demonstrate why Black Lives Matter is so important and that it doesn't mean all lives, including white, Asian, police lives, poor, rich, and everyone's lives don't matter. And the breast cancer fundraiser really spoke to me, but on a different level. Now, every year, the American Association of Zookeepers hosts a national fundraiser event across the nation called Bowling for Rhinos. 
Now, BFR isn't so different from BLM in two major ways. Yes, it's called bowling for rhinos, but it's not just rhinos who benefit from the fundraiser. The five species, the black rhino, white rhino, Javan, the greater one-horned rhino, and the Sumatran rhino all need help. However, these animals don't live on isolated islands. By helping rhinos, we also help cheetah, elephants, tigers, hornbills, giraffe, and so much more. The same can be said for Black Lives Matter. When we help black people achieve equ equity and justice, it has this wonderful ripple effect that ends up helping all lives. But again, let's go back to that cancer fundraiser analogy. At a Bowling for Rhinos event, focusing on rhinos, even though it helps other species, would you dream of boycotting that event because, quote unquote, all animals matter? Of course not. Now, as the authors state, there is a difference between focus and exclusion. If something matters, it doesn't mean that nothing else does. And then that is the end of my conservation rant. And finally, we have big idea number five, using your power to make a better world. Quote, what are your superpowers? Your fears, your spheres of influence, your skills that you can use to advance anti-racist work. Can you buy products and services from business owners owned by black people? Are you in the position to do away with referral bonuses because we tend to recommend people just like ourselves, i.e. white? Do you have the capacity to be a mentor to someone who doesn't look like you? And even if your superpowers don't spring to mind right away, know that doing the small things matter. Sometimes they matter even more when done often. For example, we should speak up when people make racist jokes, and we can interrupt when people ask us to quote-unquote, stop being so political. So, folks, we really do all have a superpower. And to me, our superpower is our why for speaking up, for acting, and for caring. It's not motivated by guilt or what you should do. It's about what you care about. How you care becomes your superpower. So, the question for you is, what's your why? Hold that thought into your heart. That is what will power you through when you read about another injustice done to a black person and it nearly breaks your will to keep going. My question for all of you today and throughout all of February this year and, you know, years to come is what is your why? Will you care for black people because it helps build a stronger community, because it helps build a better world, or because of the history of injustice and you want to make it right? Whatever your reason, let's take those steps, dear white women and men and everyone. Let's make the world better for our friends, for our family, and for our whole community. Today, tomorrow, and forever. All right, that's all I've got for this amazing book. Again, very eye-opening. Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Suzuki Graham, Dear White Women. If this new notable intrigued you, I encourage you to check the book out for yourself and also explore some other books and media that empower black people. 
You can also check out my Zoom Notable on Wangari Matai, uh, uh, two Zoom Notables on the woman herself and then on her great, great memoir, uh, Unbowed. You can also check out the Zoom Notable on the book, All We Can Save. But until next time, let's close up with a few quotes from Dear White Women. I will start off with a wonderful quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Those who stand up for justice will always be on the right side of history. Very, very poignant. The Sasha and Sarah say, It's a learned skill to listen to people's stories. People are the experts in their own lives, and we need to believe them when they tell us what's going on for them. It's well enough to say we're nice people, that we listened, that we learned, maybe even shared a story on social media about racism. But what changes if we don't do anything with that information? Nothing. They also say when black people in this country get free, the benefits will be wide reaching and transformative for society as a whole. I love this part. They, they uh, encourage us to, to do this activity. They say it may feel difficult, but if you identify as white, consider writing in your own hand on a piece of paper I have benefited from white privilege. Science shows that writing things down helps encode thoughts into our long-term memories and helps us internalize feelings and focus on the truly important things. Acknowledging white privilege is a fundamental part of white people's participation in anti-racism work. So if you're game, please take this important step with us. And to close us out, Misasha and Sarah say, you may still be asking, where do we go when we seem so divided? How can I truly make change? While we don't have all the answers, nor do we pretend to, we do know this. It is the small things. It is the conversations that start hard and get easier. The interruptions that you don't want to make but are so glad that you did. The call that you placed on behalf of the family down the street. These small things are the very things that will make change over time. This isn't just a one and done or a checklist that we can click through and neatly put into the side while, while proclaiming we're done. This is about sustained movement and all of the diverse voices and styles and brains and bodies that need to be involved. This is about the history that we are living in and creating with every action or non-action. And there are only two sides, being anti-racist or everything else. Which side will you stand on?